Chapter Sixteen C of The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter Sixteen C Lincoln's Unfaltering Courage, Relief in Storytelling, A Pretty Good Land Title, Measuring Up with Charles Sumner, General Scott Unable as a Politician, A Good Drawing Plaster, the New York Millionaires Who Wanted a Gunboat, A Good Bridge Builder, A Sick Lot of Office Seekers. An old and intimate friend from Springfield, who visited Lincoln at this period, found the door of his office in the White House locked. But going through a private room and a side entrance, he found the President lying on a sofa, evidently greatly disturbed and much excited, manifestly displeased with the outlook. Jumping up from his reclining position, he advanced, saying, "'You know better than any man living that from my boyhood up my ambition was to be President. I am President of one part of this divided country, at least. But look at me. I wish I had never been born. I've a white elephant on my hands, one hard to manage. With a fire in my front and rear, having to contend with the jealousies of the military commanders and not receiving that cordial cooperation and support from Congress that could reasonably be expected, with an active and formidable enemy in the field threatening the very life-blood of the government, my position is anything but a bed of roses. But in the darkest hours of the nation's peril Lincoln never wavered in his purpose, anxious and careworn, his heart bleeding with grief for the losses of our brave soldiers and harassed by the grave duties constantly demanding his attention, he had but one purpose—to go on unfalteringly and unhesitatingly in his course until the supremacy of the government was restored in every portion of its territory. He wrote in a private letter, "'I expect to maintain this contest, until successful, or till I die, or am conquered, or my term expires, or Congress or the country forsake me.' Besides his invincible will and courage, Lincoln had one important resource in his dark hours, an ever-ready relief for his overcharged emotions. Byron said that he sometimes laughed in order that he might not weep. Lincoln's lifelong solace was his love of storytelling. Honorable Hugh McCullough, afterward Secretary of the Treasury, relates that about a week after the Battle of Bull Run, he called at the White House, in company with a few friends and was amazed when, referring to something which had been said by one of the company about the battle that was so disastrous to the Union forces, the President remarked in his usual quiet manner, "'That reminds me of a story,' which he told in a manner so humorous as almost to lead his listeners to believe that he was free from care and apprehension. Mr. McCullough could not then understand how the President could feel like telling a story when Washington was in danger of being captured, and the whole North was dismayed. He learned his mistake afterwards, however, and perceived that his estimate of Lincoln before his election was well grounded, and that he possessed even higher qualities than he had been given credit for, that he was a man of sound judgment, great singleness and tenacity of purpose, and extraordinary sagacity, that story-telling was to him a safety-valve and that he indulged in it not only for the pleasures it afforded him, but for a temporary relief from oppressing cares. It is related that on the morning after the battle at Fredericksburg, 
Hon. I. N. Arnold, then a member of Congress from Illinois, called on the President, and to his amazement found him engaged in reading Artemus Ward. Making no reference to that which occupied the universal thought, he asked Mr. Arnold to sit down while he read to him Artemis's description of his visit to the Shakers. Shocked at this proposition, Mr. Arnold said, "'Mr. President, is it possible that with the whole land bowed in sorrow and covered with a pall in the presence of yesterday's fearful reverse, you can indulge in such levity?' Throwing down the book, with the tears streaming down his cheeks and his huge frame quivering with emotion, Lincoln answered, "'Mr. Arnold, if I could not get momentary respite from the crushing burden I am constantly carrying, my heart would break.' Ralph Waldo Emerson said, his broad good-humour running easily into jocular talk, in which he delighted, and in which he excelled, was a rich gift to this wise man. It enabled him to keep his secret, to meet every kind of man, and every rank in society, to take off the edge of the severest decisions, to mask his own purpose and sound his companion, and to catch with true instinct the temper of every company he addressed and more than all, it is to a man of severe labour, in anxious and exhausting crises, the natural restorative, good as sleep, and is the protection of the overdriven brain against rancour and insanity. Even amidst the stern realities of war, Lincoln was keenly appreciative of anything that disclosed the comic or grotesque side of men or happenings, largely doubtless for the relief afforded him, at the beginning of Lee's invasion of Pennsylvania, in June 1863, when the Union forces under Colonel Milroy were driven out of Harper's Ferry by the Confederates, great consternation and alarm were caused by reports that the Army of the Potomac had been routed and was retreating before Lee, who was pressing forward toward Harrisburg, the capital of Pennsylvania. Mr. Wells records in his diary, June 17, 1863, that he was at the War Department with the President and Secretary Stanton, when a messenger came in from General Schenck, declaring that the stragglers and baggage trains of Milroy had run away in a fright, and squads of them on different parallel roads had alarmed each other, and each fled in terror with all speed to Harrisburg. This alone was asserted to be the basis of the great panic which had alarmed Pennsylvania and the country. The President, continues Mr. Wells, was in excellent humour. He said this flight would be a capital joke for Orpheus C. Kerr. Footnote. Orpheus C. Kerr, office-seeker, was the pseudonym of Robert H. Newell, a popular humorist of the war period, who dealt particularly with the comic aspects of Washington and army life. End footnote. To get hold of. He could give scope to his imagination over the terror of broken squads of panic-stricken teamsters, frightened at each other and alarming all Pennsylvania. General Miggs, who was present, inquired with great simplicity who this person, Orpheus C. Kerr, was. "'Why,' said the President, "'have you not read those papers? They are in two volumes. Anyone who has not read them is a heathen.' He said he had enjoyed them greatly, except when they attempted to play their wit on him which did not strike him as very successful, but rather disgusted him. "'Now, the hits that are given to you, Mr. Wells, or to Chase,' he said, "'I can enjoy. 
but I dare say they may have disgusted you while I was laughing at them, so vice versa, as regards myself. Honorable Lawrence Weldon relates that on one occasion he called upon the President to inquire as to the probable outcome of a conflict between the civil and military authorities for the possession of a quantity of cotton in a certain insurrectionary district. As soon as the inquiry had been made, Lincoln's face began lighting up, and he said, "'What has become of our old friend Bob Lewis, of DeWitt County? Do you remember a story that Bob used to tell us about his going to Missouri to look up some Mormon lands that belonged to his father? You know that when Robert became of age he found among the papers of his father a number of warrants and patents for lands in northeast Missouri, and he concluded the best thing he could do was to go to Missouri and investigate the condition of things. It being before the days of railroads, he started on horseback with a pair of old-fashioned saddle-bags. When he arrived where he supposed his land was situated, he stopped, hitched his horse, and went into a cabin standing close by the roadside. He found the proprietor, a lean, lank, leathery-looking man, engaged in the pioneer business of making bullets preparatory to a hunt. On entering, Mr. Lewis observed a rifle suspended in a couple of buckhorns above the fire. He said to the man, "'I am looking up some lands that I think belong to my father,' and inquired of the man in what section he lived. Without having ascertained the section, Mr. Lewis proceeded to exhibit his title-papers in evidence, and having established a good title, as he thought, said to the man, "'Now that is my title. What is yours?' The pioneer, who had by this time become somewhat interested in the proceedings, pointed his long finger toward the rifle. Said he, "'Young man, do you see that gun?' Mr. Lewis frankly admitted that he did. "'Well,' said he, "'that is my title. And if you don't get out of here pretty damned quick, you will feel the force of it.' Mr. Lewis very hurriedly put his title-papers in his saddle-bags mounted his pony and galloped down the road, and, as Bob says, the old pioneer snapped his gun twice at him before he could turn the corner. Lewis said that he had never been back to disturb that man's title since. "'Now,' said Mr. Lincoln, "'the military authorities have the same title against the civil authorities that closed out Bob's Mormon title in Missouri.' Judge Weldon says that after this anecdote he understood what would be the policy of the government in the matter referred to, as well as though a proclamation had been issued. The tedium of meetings of the Cabinet were often relieved, and troublesome matters before it were illuminated, by some apt and pithy story. Secretary Wells tells of such an occasion, when Seward was embarrassed about the Dominican question. To move either way threatened difficulty. On one side was Spain, on the other side the Negro. The President remarked that the dilemma reminded him of the interview between two negroes, one of whom was a preacher endeavouring to admonish and enlighten the other. "'There are,' said Josh, the preacher, two roads for you, Joe. Be careful which you take. One of dem leads straight to hell. The other go right to damnation.' Joe opened his eyes under the impressive eloquence and visions of an awful future, and exclaimed, "'Josh, take which road you please.' I go true to wood." "'I am not disposed to take any new trouble,' said the President, just at this time, and shall neither go for Spain 
nor the negro in this matter, but shall take to the woods." It is related that Charles Sumner, who was a very tall man and proud of his height, once worried the President about some perplexing matter. When Lincoln sought to change the subject by abruptly challenging his visitor to measure backs, Sumner, said Mr. Lincoln, declined to stand up with me, back to back, to see which was the tallest man, and made a fine speech about this being the time for uniting our fronts against the enemy, and not our backs. But I guess he was afraid to measure, though he is a good piece of a man. I have never had much to do with bishops where I live, but do you know Sumner is my idea of a bishop? A good story of President Lincoln and General Scott is reported by Major General Keyes, who at the beginning of the war was on the staff of General Scott, then Commander-in-Chief of the Armies of the United States. I was sent, says General Keyes, by my chief to the President with a message that referred to a military subject, and that led to a discussion. Finding that Mr. Lincoln's observations were beginning to tangle my arguments, I said, that is the opinion of General Scott, and you know, Mr. President, he is a very able military man." "'Well,' said the President, "'if he is as able a military man as he is unable as a politician, I give up.' This was said with an expression of the eye which he turned on me, that was peculiar to him, and which signified a great deal. The astounding force of Mr. Lincoln's observation was not at all diminished by the fact that I had long suspected that my chief lacked something which is necessary to make a successful politician. Among the numerous delegations which thronged Washington in the early part of the war was one from New York, which urged very strenuously the sending of a fleet to the southern cities, Charleston, Mobile, and Savannah, with the object of drawing off the rebel army from Washington. Lincoln said the object reminded him of the case of a girl in New Salem, who was greatly troubled with a singing in her head. Various remedies were suggested by the neighbors, but nothing seemed to afford any relief. At last a man came along—a common-sense sort of man, said he, inclining his head towards his callers pleasantly, who was asked to prescribe for the difficulty. After due inquiry and examination, he said the cure was very simple. "'What is it?' was the question. "'Make a plaster of psalm-tunes, and apply to her feet, and draw the singing down,' was the rejoinder. Still better was his reply to another delegation of New York millionaires, who waited upon him in 1862 after the appearance of the rebel ram Merrimack, and represented to him that they were very uneasy about the unprotected situation of their city, which was exposed to attack and bombardment by rebel rams, and they requested him to detail a gunboat to defend the city. The gentlemen were fifty in number, very dignified and respectable in appearance and stated that they represented in their own right one hundred million dollars. Lincoln did not wish to offend these gentlemen, and yet he intended to give them a little lesson. He listened with great attention, and seemed to be much impressed by their presence and their statements. Then he replied very deliberately, "'Gentlemen, I am by the Constitution Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States.' and as a matter of law can order anything done that is practicable to be done. But as a matter of fact, I am not in command of the gunboats or ships of war. As a matter of fact, I do not know exactly where they are, but presume they are actively engaged. It is impossible for me, in the present condition of things, to furnish you a gunboat, 
The credit of the government is at a very low ebb. Greenbacks are not worth more than forty or fifty cents on the dollar. And in this condition of things, if I was worth half as much as you, gentlemen, are represented to be, and as badly scared as you seem to be, I would build a gunboat and give it to the government. A gentleman who accompanied the delegation says he never saw one hundred millions sink to such insignificant proportions as the committee recrossed the threshold of the White House, sadder but wiser men. Mr. Lincoln had his joke and his little story over the disruption of the democracy. He once knew, he said, a sound churchman, of the name of Brown, who was the member of a very sober and pious committee, having in charge the erection of a bridge over a dangerous and rapid river. Several architects had failed, and at last Brown said he had a friend named Jones, who had built several bridges and could undoubtedly build that one. So Mr. Jones was called in. "'Can you build this bridge?' inquired the committee. "'Yes,' replied Jones, "'or any other. I could build a bridge to hell, if necessary.' The committee were shocked, and Brown felt called upon to defend his friend. "'I know Jones so well,' said he, "'and he is so honest a man, and so good an architect, that if he states soberly and positively that he can build a bridge to—to the infernal regions, why, I believe it. But I feel bound to say that I have my doubts about the abutment on the other side." "'So,' said Mr. Lincoln, "'when politicians told me that the northern and southern wings of the democracy could be harmonized, why, I believed them, of course, but I always had my doubts about the abutment on the other side.'" A delegation once called on Lincoln to ask the appointment of a gentleman as commissioner to the Sandwich Islands. They presented their case as earnestly as possible and besides his fitness for the place they urged that he was in bad health, and a residence in that balmy climate would be of great benefit to him. The President closed the interview with the good-humoured remark, "'Gentlemen, I am sorry to say that there are eight other applicants for that place, and they are all sicker than your man.'" End of chapter 16c. Recording by Bill Borst.